Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. I have a lot of experience reporting on intimate, sensitive subjects because, you know, reproductive health has been my beat for a long time. You have like the proliferation of hospitals at the same time or kind of on a parallel timeline to midwifery really being stamped out and kind of disappearing. It varies from state to state. I think that based on the reporting I've done that Oregon is pretty good because midwives are relatively normal here. And so I would say in Oregon, the relationships are much better than in many other places. And that's not to say that they're perfect. All right, folks, today we are very excited to bring you an interview with author and journalist Rebecca Grant. Rebecca just came out with a book. It's called Birth, Three Mothers, Nine Months, and Pregnancy in America. And we had a really interesting conversation that I think is very timely at this moment in Oregon politics. As we talk about in the episode, oftentimes when we're talking about reproductive issues, we focus on abortion that takes up a ton of space in the political discourse and political dialogue during campaigns. Oftentimes in media, we're talking about Supreme Court decisions, and it's all focused on abortion. But the conversation about reproductive rights and reproductive health more broadly encompasses a lot more than just abortion. And that's what we focus on in the conversation today. It's more a conversation about maternal health, both in Oregon and across the country. And I think it's really valuable. And I, frankly, I think the political discourse on reproductive health is lacking, <laughs> to put it mildly. And this conversation illustrates that. The book illustrates that. We talk a lot about like the some of the bigger questions we talk about at the end are why does the United States have so much worse maternal health outcomes than other comparable countries? Why are there such strong racial disparities for some racial groups in this country, particularly Black and Indigenous women? As Rebecca talks about, we talk about miscarriages. We talk about some of the more controversial issues wrapped up in maternal health. And we also talk about her book and how she framed it. It follows three moms, as the subtitle alludes, or I guess three expecting moms who are all Oregonians, or I, I should say not all Oregonians, but all receiving their care in Oregon. They've chosen a birth center, the Andalus Birth Center, and um, she, she follows these women throughout the process, starting at about 12 weeks into their pregnancy and then following them for a few months after they've had their children. Really interesting conversation, very interesting author. We will link in the show notes to the book and to Rebecca's website so you can learn more about her. But without further ado, we will get right into our interview with Rebecca Grant. Harangue Long PC has always recognized that achieving our clients' goals sometimes requires a change in the law. And in other situations, clients need help stopping or changing proposed amendments to the law that put their interests at risk. For decades, we have played a role in shaping Oregon law on many subjects, from narrow regulations to major policy changes implicating billions of dollars. Our lawyers work with clients to draft legislation, prepare legal opinions and testimony to share with legislators, coordinate with professional lobbyists, and work directly with policymakers. To learn more about Harang Long's policy and politics practice, go to harang.com. That's H-A-R-R-A-N-G.com.
All right, Rebecca Grant, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So before we jump into the book, which we're very excited to talk about, I wanted to ask a little bit about your background. I saw that you served in the Peace Corps. Is that right? Yes, I did. 2009 to 2011. So about a year after I graduated from college. And so what were you what were uh, you doing in Thailand? So it was an education project. There were two projects that were ongoing at the time. And so mine was an education and sort of teacher training one. And then I also did a bunch of kind of public health related stuff kind of on my own at my site. So I did a sex ed campaign and I chaired the gender and development committee. So certainly a lot of the themes that I address or that come up in my work now were present in some of my interests back then. And yeah, I loved it, had an amazing time and feel like it really taught me a lot that has helped as a freelancer, which is, and there's, I think there's some overlap between like making it as a freelancer in media and maybe some of the skills from Peace Corps. So totally. like it came. <laughs> that's awesome. So were you from Portland before college or did you move to Portland after the Peace Corps? Like how does Oregon fit into your journey? I'm actually a relatively new Oregon resident. So I grew up outside of DC. I lived abroad for a couple of years during Peace Corps. And then I've moved around a lot. I lived in San Francisco, lived abroad again, lived in New York. And then I moved to Oregon, to Portland in 2020, actually. So, oh, no kidding. Mm-hmm. Like so during the pandemic? Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I love it. I'm thrilled to be here. But I feel like the first year, because it was still, you know, height of the pandemic and pre-vaccine, I didn't really get to know the city as well. I, I had spent plenty of time here over the years with friends and family who live here. So it's been really fun to have more of a chance to kind of experience Portland as a full-time resident when I can go indoors places. So <laughs> was there a specific reason that brought you here? It was a whole mix of things. My husband and I met in San Francisco. So I think we always knew we'd return to the coast. We have family in Oregon and, you know, we're coming out and visiting all of the time and just sort of like, what if we lived here? This would be amazing. We could go hiking and camping and, you know, in New York, which I I love New York, but we didn't have any outdoor space. And so Mm -hmm. I think we were just feeling ready for a change. And that was in motion before COVID broke out. But then I think that accelerated our timeline because we were just, you know, in our Brooklyn apartment going a little bit stir crazy. <laughs> totally. Well, my next question was going to be about Powell's. You, by the time this podcast comes out, you will have given a book talk at Powell's, which if you're from Oregon is like, that is how you reach the legendary status. Like you've written a book where you get to talk at Powell's. So I was going to ask you like what it meant when you found out that you were going to be speaking at Powell's. Hopefully it's sunk in in the first three years here that it's a big deal. <laughs> I mean, I, Powell's was my first stop every time we came to Portland, you know, over the past decade or however long to visit our family and friends here. So I was already a very devoted fan and, you know, I like had a Powell's tote bag before I even moved here. So I'm extremely excited and cannot wait. And I'm, I've done a couple of events already, but I'm especially excited for Powell's because two of the people who are in the book, two of my characters, my sources are going to be participating in the conversation, yeah. which I think is going to be really fun and interesting. And I'm also keen to to hear from them a little bit about kind of what it's like for them to be going through this now that the book is out. Totally. In fact, I got a question about that in just a second. But before we dive into the characters and some of the implications of the book, as I mentioned before, we've got a relatively diverse listenership. We've got conservative folks. We've got progressive folks, older, younger people with kids and without and I was, as I was reading your book and listening to some of the other podcasts that you've done very recently, I was thinking, 
and this is definitely true on the national level, but it's also just as true in Oregon. Like when we talk about reproductive health or reproductive justice, so much of the oxygen is spent on abortion and it's spent on Supreme Court decisions related to abortion or, you know, whether a gubernatorial candidate is either pro-choice or pro-life. And as the book described, like abortion is part of the book, abortion comes up in the book, but maternal health and reproductive rights are way more than just abortion. And I was just reflecting on how poorly the political discourse in this country does at addressing that and addressing some of the the other hot topics or important issues in maternal health. So just as a sort of level setting few questions, the book is a, a lot, of, it focuses on a birth center in Portland. What are the, the spectrum of choices available to folks in terms of locations where they can give birth? And what are the frequency of those options in terms of what consumers or patients or clients choose? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the vast majority of people give birth in hospitals, and that's true across the country. So it's something like 98% of people give birth in hospitals. And the Pacific Northwest has sort of like the highest rates of out of hospital birth as compared to the rest of the country. So it's much more common here than in most other parts of the country. But even with those higher numbers, it's still, you know, a fraction of the number of births that are happening overall. So you have hospitals an option, but even within hospitals, there's a lot of variation, right? There's teaching hospitals, there are, you know, smaller community hospitals, there are bigger systems, there are, you know, there's sort of a fair amount of variation even within that category. And then you have birth centers, which again, this is kind of a theme, there's some variation. And so there are birth centers. And even just thinking about Portland, there are birth centers that are run predominantly by direct entry midwives who, there's a lot of acronyms, but CPM, which stands for Certified Professional Midwife, is is sort of the most like nationally well-known one. And so those are midwives who are not necessarily nurses, but they have gone through a midwifery kind of like training and education that's pretty rigorous. And then there's also CNMs who are certified nurse midwives who are nurses who got a midwifery credential. And so in Portland, there's a number of birth centers. Some of them have primarily direct entry midwives on staff. Some have mostly nurse midwives on staff, but most have a blend and they'll be, they'll kind of be both types of practitioners who are there. And then finally, of course, you can have a home birth. And so most home births tend to have direct entry midwives or CPMs who attend them, but you know it can it can vary. So it's sort of interesting in Oregon, I think, in particular, because we do have a fair amount of both categories of midwife, and they do work across environments. And so there's you know more variation than in some other parts of the country where, like you know, there are 13 or 14 states where CPMs can't even legally practice. And so, you know, it's not even kind of an option that's available. So I think, you know, here in Oregon, which has a pretty robust midwifery community, you really do see a lot of different variation on the options, both in terms of environment and in terms of provider type. So, and this is a frequent theme in the book, but why would someone want to choose a birth center versus a hospital? Like, I think there's an assumption like a hospital would be a safer place to give birth. You've got all these options and medical professionals who could be there to help you. So why would someone choose a midwifery or a birth center? Yeah, I think a lot of people feel that the hospital is where they want to be and that's where they feel the safest and that's where they feel like what they feel like they have access to. And I think that that is great and absolutely fine. And, you know, I try to be really careful in the book about not saying that I think 
that midwifery is the best option for every single person. I think it's all about finding the right environment for each person and what their circumstances are, what they're kind of looking for. And so for the characters in the book, and and I think for many people who are interested in out of hospital birth or going to a birth center, part of it is if in some cases, if they've had a negative experience or negative interactions with the medical system before, whether it was for reproductive healthcare or whether it was for something different. I think some people feel very strongly about trying to have a quote unquote natural birth or a birth without an epidural or sort of more intensive pain relief. And so the birth center feels like the best opportunity for them to, to make sure that that happens. And, you know, a lot of people have multiple reasons, of course. You know, I think for some people, it's about control. It's about feeling like Mm. they're going into an environment where they have a real relationship with their provider that they've been building over the course of hour-long appointments over, you know, a nine-month or or however long period. So it just feels like it's more comfortable and and they have a relationship with the person who's going to be attending their birth, as opposed to going into a large institution like a hospital, which I think for some people can feel maybe less personal or overwhelming or, you know, sort of more intensively clinical. And so, you know, I think that there's a lot of reasons, and I'm sure plenty of which I didn't touch on. And, I, you know, I think for people who are seeking out birth center care, even within that kind of speaking to that point I made before about how there's a lot of different options. Like one of the characters in the book, she toured three or four different birth centers before she picked the one Mm. that felt like the best fit. So even once you've sort of decided, okay, I want to go this direction, or I want to go into this type of environment, there can still be parsing through kind of which feels like it's the best fit and that can also include questions like, what does my insurance cover, of course, and, and what will the cost be? Well, and, and then, you know, there's the character who chooses a birth center and then ends up giving birth at a hospital. So this is all very dynamic and not like a fixed final choice. But to the point about insurance and costs, can you give us a sense of like, what does insurance cut? Like, d- does insurance reimburse equally across all of these different options? What are the out-of-pocket costs for pregnant women? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I found really interesting as I was reporting is that the U.S. for overall for our maternal health care costs, they are sky high. They are much more than in some peer countries. And, you know, the average cost of a vaginal birth is around like $23,000. And the average cost of a surgical birth or a cesarean section is, you know, closer to 47000 And so overall, the like in terms of absolute costs hospital birth is much more expensive, but because insurance coverage for hospital birth is much more robust than the actual out-of-pocket cost potentially could be less for someone who goes to a hospital than if they went to an out-of-hospital provider who their insurance didn't coverage. And so for midwifery, it depends on where you are, but the services generally speaking seem to be from, you know, $3,000 to $9,000 total. But if you're paying that out of pocket, that's might be end up being more expensive for you. And so I think Oregon is pretty good in that there are most of a lot of the private insurance companies here will cover birth centers or even potentially home birth and the public insurance ostensibly covers out of hospital birth and and certain birth centers. But I know from the interviews I've done with midwives, it, it can be really challenging both for people to get approved for eligibility and then also for the reimbursement to actually happen or for the reimbursement to be sustainable and adequate 
So there are birth centers in Oregon or in Portland who would like to be able to accept the public insurance, but are no longer accepting it or stopped accepting it because it just really didn't feel sustainable. So even in a state like Oregon, which is pretty progressive and, and the coverage is relatively robust here compared to other states, it's still not always easy for people to ensure that an out-of-hospital birth will be covered. But in the case of the characters in the book, at least two of them, their private insurance did cover the birth center that they went to. So that was one of the first things that they were considering when they were figuring out where to go was like, how much am I going to have to expect to pay out of pocket? Because, you know, babies are expensive. People don't want to spend all of their money beforehand and then feel like they don't, you know, they're sort of used up all their resources that way. So it's yeah. a big concern for a lot of parents. The, the reimbursement aspect is really interesting because that's a similar theme in primary care um, with primary care doctors feeling like they actually can't make ends meet or can't sustain their business model by seeing Medicaid patients. So it's interesting that that's applying across different practice areas. And before I transition into some specific questions, this I think underscores why, like this is an important topic on several different levels, but in a broader sort of like in the broader context of healthcare policy and the cost of healthcare in this country, childbirth is the most common reason for hospitalization in the United States. 23% of all hospital studies um, are from pregnancy. I learned that in your book. And so I'm curious, like how you see this question of giving birth in the broader context of the U.S. healthcare system. We'll talk a little bit later about sort of like policy reforms and different implications of your book, but I'm kind of curious how you think about this in the broader context of U.S. healthcare. Yeah, I think one of the things that I find so interesting about maternal healthcare and this topic is that it isn't just a medical event for a lot of people. It's also like a family event. It's how, you know, it's about them growing their family. It's very emotional. It's you're making all of these decisions that can sort of at times, I think for some people feel philosophical for some people it's spiritual. I mean, there's just like all of these other things that are wrapped up in the kind of experience and process of pregnancy and childbirth that at the same time is a medical event, but not in the same way of like a knee surgery or an appendectomy or something, right? Like mm -hmm. you're not going in for a knee surgery, presumably, and sort of having all of these other aspects of your life and your being and your hopes for your future that are completely wrapped up in that. And so I think that one of the challenges and a theme that came up a lot with people I interviewed is that it can be jarring sometimes to have this what feels like this incredibly momentous thing that you're going through both personally. And so like, yes, there's medical stuff going on, but it's not only that. And then to go into an environment where that, of course, is the focus, right? Because that's what hospitals are so good at. And so, you know, if people will sort of feel like they're, they don't maybe feel like they're sick. They don't feel like there's something that is wrong with them. They don't feel like they kind of need to be quote unquote fixed. But then when they go into a more clinical environment that is really good at trying to fix people or heal people or, you know, sort of cure people if they have an illness, that there can be kind of a disconnect there. And so mm -hmm. I think it, that, I mean, that kind of goes back to the question of what draws people to birth centers. And it also connects to the cost issue because part of the reason why the costs of maternal health care are so high in the U.S. is that for the most part, people who are going into a hospital to give birth everything is sort of prepared around like a worst case scenario. Like what are all of the resources that we need to marshal regardless of what the patient's sort of like health history is and what their complications might be. So that's something like having the 
operating room available. It's having an anesthesiologist who's available for epidurals. And so when you have all of those resources universally kind of available for every patient, even the patients who don't want or need them, that raises the cost for everyone. And so I think that that sort of question of like how it fits into the landscape is an interesting one because it both is in some ways very reflective of our broader healthcare system, which we know is, you know, tends to have really high costs can be an issue of access in terms of who has access to preventative care. But then it also is sort of unique because I think that childbirth and pregnancy is also unique in terms of like the other types of procedures or issues that people are going into hospitals for. So if a listener was listening to this and they're hearing this description, they're like, wow, it costs way less money to give birth in a birth center generally. For some folks, it actually might be more comfortable and more in line with what they want or what they're seeking in their childbirth experience. Can you tell the story of why, how we got to a place where 98% of childbirths are in a hospital? Like it seems misaligned. And I know there's reasons how we ended up here, but what's the history of this? For a long time in the U.S., just, you know, as like in other places, births primarily happened in homes. And, you know, this is sort of before hospitals were even kind of like a factor, right? Like before they were widely available or sort of even really existed in their modern form. And so midwives attending birth at home was the norm and midwives tended to be elders, women who were trusted and respected members of their communities and who, you know, mostly usually had their own children. And so then they were attending other women. And then as over the course of the 19th century, as medicine in the U.S. became more structured and more formalized and sort of professionalized and as kind of the modern medical apparatus as we know it began to form like as a movement away from sectarian medicine when there were lots of different types of practitioners. So as medicine became more formalized and physicians started to get more interested and involved in childbirth. And so at first they were going into homes. So it might be a a male doctor who was going into someone's home. In some cases, a midwife might also be there. And then as facilities, as kind of like more clinical medical facilities became more common. And as there were medical advancements around things like, you know, sort of like hygiene practices, And then, you know, in the 20th century, as hospitals really proliferated, kind of trend was to move women into the hospital because, uh, you know, both it was like an environment that you could control, you could have all of your tools there, you could make sure that it was clean in a way that could sometimes be difficult at homes. But then it was also in some ways more convenient for the physicians because they weren't going to all these people's different homes, right? And so there was really the sort of campaign both to eradicate midwifery, in particular in in like urban environments and places where doctors were actively practicing. And then there was also this kind of idea of the hospital as this kind of modern medical, you know, kind of like a, I think there's a quote somewhere in the book about like how there's sort of like palaces of obstetric achievement as like the best, most scientifically advanced, most kind of medically forward place to give birth. And in there, you know, in some ways, like the hospitals were where blood banks were, like there were access to things in hospitals that were genuinely helping to make childbirth safer. So that just really kind of became the norm. So you have like the proliferation of hospitals at the same time, or kind of on a parallel timeline to midwifery really being stamped out and kind of disappearing. And so that was sort of a very brief (laughs) overview of kind of how we got to where we are today. Is there still tension between midwives and OBGYNs? What is the relationship between those two like categories? 
Absolutely. And I think, you know, again, it varies from state to state. I think that based on the reporting I've done that Oregon is pretty good because midwives are relatively normal here. And so hospitals, many of the hospitals here and the midwifery practices will work closely together and they're familiar working together. I mean, one of a birth center that I introduce in the book, which isn't Andalus, which is kind of the primary one. It was actually started by an OBGYN practice as part of it and was quite closely affiliated with hospitals. And then hospitals in Oregon also, many of them have nurse midwifery practices within the hospital. So the patients who are going there are still seeing a midwife, but they're seeing it in a hospital environment. And so I would say in Oregon, the relationships are much better than in many mm. other places. And that's not to say that they're perfect, but you know, there's like a sort of a long history of antagonism there. But you know, there are other states where there is not any kind of legal infrastructure or regulatory infrastructure around out of hospital birth or direct entry midwives who would perform it. And there can be a lot of antipathy and hostility. And, you know, I've, for a, a story I did a couple of years ago, I interviewed a midwife who was arrested for practicing in a oh state that. Gosh. Yeah. And so in those states, midwives can actually be, can face legal jeopardy for transferring a client to the hospital. And so that creates this really negative dynamic because if a client needs to transfer, then, you know, the midwife has to make this decision of like, do I go with this client and put myself at risk of potential prosecution? Do I send the client on their own, but then there's no one to communicate or collaborate with what's going on with the doctor? So yeah, I think that's just sort of one of the reasons why ensuring that there is some sort of like regulatory or licensure apparatus that can make sure that midwives are able to practice and have these collaborative relationships with doctors and hospitals, which there's a lot of research that shows that that's absolutely critical for the safety of, of out-of-hospital birth. It's important that there's integration. It's important that the different types of providers can communicate across environments for the good of the client. So, you know, I would say that I think that that question of sort of like why or what the relationship is, it has these really deep-seated roots in history, and it's also very much like a contemporary concern of, of sort of what are these relationships looking like. Here's what I hope. I think it's a, probably a dumb question, and I hope it isn't a thing. Is this about politics? Is this like Democrats are pro-midwives and Republicans are anti and like red states won't allow them and blue states will? Or is it more complicated than that? Like what's the political dynamics here? One of the things that I find so fascinating about this question, especially as a reporter who covers abortion rights all the time, is that it's actually really hard to put our kind of main political categories and overlay it over the midwifery issue. So mm. there are a lot of very sort of like left wing, like sort of like, you know, the resurgence of midwifery that happened in the 70s was really driven by hippies. And so it was... Mm this very sort of like left-wing kind of thing, you know, this idea of like sticking it to the man or getting back to the land. But then there's also a really robust midwifery tradition on kind of on the other side of the spectrum around like, you know, people who have large families, people who are very religious, like a lot of very religious communities have midwifery as a practice more so than than in others, like I know in, in certain Amish and Mennonite communities, midwives are kind of the primary providers for them. Mm -hmm. And then you sort of also get this idea of like avoiding kind of like the institutions or or the establishment. And so it's really interesting because it sort of support or interest in midwifery isn't as clean as sort of like maybe what we think of as abortion rights in terms of like which party that you're going to align with. And so 
There are states like Oregon, which are, you know, pretty blue, that are supportive towards midwifery. But then like Texas and Florida have a lot of midwives and birth centers there. So, Mm. and then, but then Alabama, where I've done a fair amount of reporting, they have had like a pretty bare knuckle (laughs) fight over the past couple of years around the legalization of midwifery and midwives there are struggling to open birth centers. And so it really feels like this sort of state by state situation that you can't necessarily predict based on what the other politics are. That's super, super interesting. And it actually kind of segues into my next question. So the book kind of tells the story of this context of this. It's not really a policy issue, but it is a policy issue about like childbirth in America. And it tells the story through the experiences of these three women, all of whom, well, actually, I think one of them's from Washington, right? But the other two are from Oregon. They're Pacific Northwest families. The birth center is Andalus in Portland. And we won't talk much about the women themselves. I will say it's one of the questions I do want to ask you, though, is like, there's some very intimate moments in this book, some very <laughs> like, uh, like very honest, like some are really heartbreaking and really tragic and sad. Some might be a little bit embarrassing to read about yourself in that way, but it's very just like a tr- it's true. It just tells what these experiences are. So I was curious, like, did a final copy of the book get in their hands before it was printed? And like, how have they reacted to seeing their stories described like this on the national scale? They all have copies. It's interesting because I have a lot of experience reporting on intimate, sensitive subjects because, you know, reproductive health has been my beat for a long time. And so I generally think it's a pretty good policy from the beginning of any source relationship to kind of try to stress test it in a way to to sort of just be like, this is what to expect. This is what the hopes are that I have of like the things that I would like to be able to discuss and publish. And what are your concerns? What are their boundaries that you want to set ahead of time? What is your comfort around privacy or anonymity or confidentiality? So with each of these characters, each of these sources, I tried to have those conversations from the get-go that were really clear about what I was trying to do, what I wanted to ask about, that it was going to go into a book that was going to be published. And obviously, you never know how a book's going to do, but it's sort of like, let's just be prepared for a situation in which a lot of people are reading it because you just want to make sure that they're really prepared for that. And, you know, I have had experiences before with sources who they're, you know, fine talking, but then once it's out there in the world, it feels different. And so I really just wanted to make sure that with each of these people, each of these women who I built these relationships with that I was checking in pretty regularly about how they were feeling and that we would talk through any concerns that they had. And I mean, I think one or two times as the relationship progressed, like they would sort of be like, like, it's fine. I'm still in, like, you don't have to keep (laughs) thinking more, but I just felt like it was really important to continually engage with that along the way. And I gave each of them the option to not use their real first name if, if they felt like that made them feel better, but they all continued to say that they were fine with that. And so, yeah, I'm just incredibly honored and grateful that they were as honest with me as they were and that they were willing to share so much and let me in and then let me kind of share that more broadly. And I think part of their motivation for participating in a project like this is that I think especially for people who are navigating this type of experience for the first time, you might think that you know a lot and you might have read all of the baby books and you might have friends and family who have been through it. But I think it can actually feel really hard to get real information or have real conversations about what certain aspects of going through this are like, whether that's talking about 
how common miscarriages, or it's talking about the crazy things that your body does as you're going through this. And the fact that like, maybe your hip bones aren't going to be in the same place afterwards. And like your pants won't, I mean, it's just, so I think that each of them really felt the sense of sort of paying it forward a little bit where they were like, I would have loved to have read something that felt really honest and raw about pregnancy and birth while I was going through this process. So I'm going to share so honestly, so that other people will be able to maybe like find some comfort or solace or sense of solidarity through those stories. So yeah, I think that that was part of what their motivations were. But I also know that it has felt weird, not necessarily bad, but like weird for them to read their own story and have it kind of be that like, at that remove, right? I think that's just probably really a weird experience for anyone. I can only imagine. I hope they get to talk about that at Powell's. And I was also thinking too, like, someday those babies are going to be adults, and they're going to get to read the story of like, how they (laughs) came into being, which will be Maybe that's the second book you'll write is like what they think about that (laughs) process. I'm actually going to, you mentioned miscarriages. So I'm going to skip ahead to that question. Infertility, miscarriages, postpartum depression. There are components of childbirth that are not often discussed. Or that I think in, you write about shame and stigma that are attached to some aspects of pregnancy and childbirth. Can you explain your thesis on why there is so much shame and stigma attached to something like a miscarriage, for example? I think that people often feel with miscarriage, like it was their fault, like they did something wrong, or they did something to cause it. And that's certainly not the case. And miscarriage, you know, as I said before, is really common. It's like 10 to 20% of known pregnancies end in miscarriage. But I think for a lot of people, it can feel sort of like a failure or it can feel like they sort of aren't living up to what they're supposed to be doing or want to be doing. And like, certainly that's not true for everyone. Like some people have a miscarriage and they view it as a sort of natural process of their body, you know responding in a certain way. So I, you know, I think that's part of like the whole landscape is people will have different responses and they might have different responses to different experiences of miscarriage or loss. But I think that it's sort of just treated as this thing that you're not really supposed to talk about. And so then that fuels this kind of environment of stigma or shame around it. And so there's kind of a norm in the U S where most people don't share that they're pregnant, at least publicly or broadly until they're around 12 weeks. And that's Mm -hmm. because the rate is sort of, it's less likely after 12 weeks. And so on the one hand, that makes a lot of sense because you don't necessarily want to announce that you're pregnant and then have to unannounce it if you do end up having a miscarriage. Or it can be really difficult to, you know, to have people like ask you how your pregnancy is going and then you have to tell them you're not pregnant anymore. So for a lot of reasons, that makes sense. But then what that also means is that you don't hear a lot about miscarriage because if you haven't told anyone you're pregnant, you might not be telling them that you experienced the loss either. And so with one of the characters in the book, she kind of did that like 12 week thing the first time, or or that was her plan. And she ended up having a miscarriage. So then when she got pregnant again, she really just told her family and friends super early because she kind of figured like, if I'm going to have a miscarriage which was an eventuality she hadn't been prepared for that first time and felt a little bit blindsided. But so the second time she was like, if I am going to have a miscarriage, I'm going to tell the people around me because I'm going to need their support. So I'm just going to share that I'm pregnant early. And so of course, that's something that like each individual, each family will decide for themselves. But 
I do think that people are now starting to talk more openly about miscarriages. Like we've had and losses, we've had, there have been some celebrities who have shared their stories of going through it. And, you know, on social media, you'll see people talking about it. So I do think that that is starting to shift and there is starting to be a broader recognition of the fact that this is just like that miscarriage and loss are really kind of a normal and kind of common part of any broader fertility or reproductive health journey. So interesting. And I think such useful analysis. Do you think that the like politicization of abortion and other reproductive rights issues plays into this at all? Like, is there an overlap between the national discourse on reproductive issues and the unwillingness or disinterest in folks of actually like talking about the real experiences they're having navigating childbirth? Yes, absolutely. Because there's already so many stories, some of which I have reported on, of in states that have banned abortion, there are people who are having spontaneous miscarriages who are unable to get the medical care that they need, who are, you know, we're having a wanted pregnancy and experiencing a loss and they go into a hospital and the doctors won't treat them because the doctors are worried about getting in trouble because the care for miscarriage management is basically identical to abortion care, whether it's through medication or whether it's through a procedure like a DNC or aspiration, like the medical care for abortion and miscarriage is pretty much the same. And so in states with abortion bans, doctors are understandably concerned about falling afoul of the law. But then what that means is there are people who are unable to get the care that they need, kind of regardless of what the circumstances were around the loss. And so this is part of why abortion bans are really harmful to maternal health. And we know that they lead to increases in maternal mortality. And so I think I think that there's sort of a way in which if you normalize pregnancy loss as something that is happened and is sort of a part of life and something that a lot of people go through, I think that that tends to undercut some of the arguments around um, believing that abortion shouldn't exist or that it's wrong. Because then what you're also saying is that like miscarriage is sort of somehow, um, you know, nefarious as well. So I think that those things are very closely related and that just it really goes to emphasize why if you believe that people who are experiencing a miscarriage should be able to get timely medical care, then you really can't in good conscience support an abortion ban. So we've got a few minutes left and I want to ask some very big questions. (laughs) So the big question, number one, why does the United States as a very wealthy industrialized country have such worse maternal health outcomes than other comparable countries in terms of wealth and industrialization. What is driving that truth? Yes, that is a very big question. <laughs> and one that <laughs> I will try to answer succinctly. I mean, our maternal mortality rates aren't great across the board, but the most serious issue are the racial inequities mm-hmm. and disparities in maternal mortality. And so Black women are two to three times more likely to, or three to four times. I'm sorry, I can't remember the specific statistic right now. Two, but, but 243%, yeah. 243%, thank you. Okay, so all three of those numbers that I said, and yeah. <laughs> more likely to die in childbirth than white women. And those disparities are true, even when you control for other factors like socioeconomic status, like education. And so ultimately, conversations about maternal mortality you have to talk about race and specifically you have to talk about racism because the issue isn't that 
women of color, but black women in particular are, you know, sort of in any way, like more likely to have some sort of a complication. It's the reality of being a person of color or a black woman in our society and what that does and the effects that that has and the impact that that has and how you're treated by the medical system. And so, you know, I think that any conversation about maternal mortality and about addressing maternal mortality really has to focus on what can we do to make sure that Black women are receiving the best possible care, that they have access to all of the resources that they need, and that they're being treated with dignity and compassion when they are seeking care and, you know, when they are seeking care for, for pregnancy and childbirth, and that that's really kind of where the energy should be focused on in terms of how to improve our maternal mortality rates overall. So that is my next question is about, I think you used the term medical racism. Can you define medical racism and what that actually looks like in a hospital setting? It can manifest in a lot of different ways. Sort of one phrase that I encountered in my research and my reporting that I cite in the book is this idea of too little, too late, or too much, too soon. And so, you know, medical racism could look like someone who is experiencing some symptoms or experiencing a complication or just sort of having something going on, and they're unable to get those symptoms taken seriously. They may find that they're being dismissed or ignored or not believed, or that, you know, they're saying like, I'm feeling this or this is happening. And then they're sort of just like not being trusted as accounters of what's going on in their own bodies. And so that can mean that they're not getting the care that they need. You know, medical racism can manifest in the ways in which, you know, people might have chronic health conditions or a higher likelihood of chronic health conditions due to living in a community where there isn't access to clean water or, you know, in a food desert. So it can manifest that way. And it can also manifest in sort of the way that people are treated. You know, are you just sort of being kind of like told what's going to happen to you? Are you going to like, will you be faster to be told that you need to have a C-section as opposed to someone else, which could potentially lead to complications? So there's sort of a lot of different ways that medical racism can manifest. And I think it's sort of that like too little, too late, or too much, too soon, when you have the combination of both of those things, like not being listened to or getting the care that you need in a timely environment, or kind of having too much happen to you for things that you don't necessarily need or that aren't warranted that can then lead to complications. And when you kind of have those things coming together, it can create a pretty harmful situation. Do you know, are the disparities similar or the same? Like in a state like Oregon, we have a relatively large Latino population. Are the racial disparities similar between other racial groups? So based on my research, the two groups that really have the kind of most acute, severe disparities are the Black and African American community, and then also Indigenous and Native women. And so they have like comparable maternal mortality rates in terms of sort of the ratios. And then the like most recent kind of data that I was looking at found that among the Latino community and among the sort of like Asian community as a category, that the disparities are not as stark. And then, you know, in some cases, like with the Asian community, there's variation within it, because of course, it's such a kind of broad and in some ways arbitrary category anyway. And so, you know, while certainly different groups can be dealing with different challenges, you know, for the Latino community, having access to language and like Spanish speaking environments, like that can be really important. And of course, immigration is an issue there and like making sure undocumented folks have access to healthcare resources. So there are different different challenges or issues that can face different communities. But really, if you're looking at these sort of like outsized rates of maternal mortality, it really is 
predominantly Black women and Indigenous women who you see these kind of like spikes. Hmm. And for all questions of racism, this is a hard question, but for the issue of medical racism and some of the things, I forgot the phrase, I wish I would have written this down, but there's a phrase that you use about like, I think it's like one in six women report like not being listened to or being ignored or not having their concerns addressed. And that like doubles for women of color in the process. Are there policy solutions to these kind of questions? Are these like medical sector solutions that need to be done through like training of physicians? Are these like bigger cultural things that are just sort of like embody the cultural issues we're facing? How do you think about what we do about this problem of medical racism? Yeah, I mean, so there's kind of a movement, which maybe is the term you were referring to, that's known as the obstetric violence movement, or Mm. sort of like philosophy or idea. And so that really gets at the mistreatment, that question of mistreatment and coercion, because yeah, one in six people will report like feeling mistreated during their birth experience, which can mean sort of being maybe like yelled at or, or feeling like they're being manipulated into something, or, you know, condescended to, of course, and then yeah, it's higher for women of color. And I think that there's a lot of different, like it's both sort of maybe in some ways at an individual level of like training, certainly. And there's, you know, there are different models or sort of languages around this, like the idea of informed consent and shared decision-making is something that you are, I'm hearing and, and physicians have been talking about for a long time. But there's also a quote in the book from a doctor who said that like, I think the quote is that a, a bad system will beat a good person every time or something along those lines. And so you really do have to look at those larger structural questions of what are the environments that people are operating in? And so then, or sort of working and not operating like surgery, (laughs) but so then you get at questions like liability reform, right? And so the ways that doctors might practice in a certain type of way, or there might be pressure on them from the hospital administration to practice in a certain type of way to reduce the risk of liability, which could then make them more likely to to recommend or sort of to say that we should do a C-section because they think it'll lower the risk of liability. But then that also might be for a patient who isn't doesn't feel like they want to do that yet or they want to have, they want to try pushing more. And so then like there's sort of other imperatives that are at work other than just what the patient is expressing that they want. And there might not always feel like their time, right? Like hospitals can be really strapped for resources. And so that ability to really, you know, sit and talk with every single patient just, you know, sometimes just isn't completely feasible. There are studies around like cost orientation and sort of like cost models and the impact that that can have on outcomes. And so there are all these sort of like structural things that can be shaping the ways that physicians are operating in the environment that they're in. And so, you know, I think it's fair to say that doctors and and OBGYNs want the best for their patients. They want the best for the people in their care. They want everyone to be safe. And so it's just can be sort of challenging when you're in this big bureaucratic institutional environment that does have other imperatives to then also try and make sure that sort of every person who's going through there is being heard in the way that they want to be heard for what they're going through. And there's one study that I cite in the book about how the number one kind of like indicator or risk factor for whether you're going to have a C-section is which hospital you go to, because some hospitals have a 7% C-section rate and other hospitals have a 70% C-section rate. And in some part that could be reflective of the population that a hospital serves. Like if there's a higher risk 
population or a higher incidence of complications, it makes sense that they would have a higher C-section rate, but that's still a huge swing. And so I think that that just speaks in some ways to how kind of the institutional culture can shape the way that certain things are being recommended or the way that people are practicing. And then that can sometimes butt up against what patients want. And so I think that you know, that clash and where that kind of clash exists can then lead to those relatively high rates of, of mistreatment that we talked about before. It's so interesting. We are almost out of time. So I'm going to ask one more big question. In the United States, federal policymaking in the last decade or so has been glacial. And it often seems like ill-equipped to like address a policy issue as large as this, and in some ways as controversial as some aspects of reproductive rights can be. But that isn't true in states. And as you mentioned, states across this country have very different policy landscapes when it comes to childbirth. If a state wanted to be the state with the best maternal health outcomes and the strongest system of childbirth that empowers people to be at the location they want and have the resources that they need for a healthy pregnancy and good outcomes, what are some of the menu of things that those states should be thinking about? What are the policy levers? that they should be focusing on if they wanted to to really turn outcomes around and be a model for the rest of the country? I mean, I think that insurance coverage is definitely a big one because the ability of people to access timely healthcare, to access preventative healthcare, to start prenatal care early can have a really big impact on pregnancy outcomes and sort of health overall. And so just on a basic level, you know, ensuring that people are going into pregnancy as healthy as they sort of can be is a really good step towards trying to ensure that they then are able to have healthy pregnancies. And so, you know, expanding and extending Medicaid and, and public health cover health insurance, both before someone is pregnant, but then also certainly postpartum, because with maternal mortality, you know, I think maybe even for me, like before I really started reporting on this, I kind of had this idea that maternal deaths were ha- like happening, like it, like while delivery was going on, kind of in the moment. And that's true for some, but many of the maternal deaths that are counted are actually happening in the weeks and months after delivery. And so, ensuring that people continue to have healthcare and insurance coverage and access to doctors and, and coverage sort of during the postpartum period is also really important. And I think support for birth centers and for midwives to be able to practice in a sustainable way is important. Is important, And so that also gets it coverage. Like can midwives and birth centers, are they able to accept public insurance and be reimbursed adequately? Are their patients able to sort of be counted as eligible? Can people from all different backgrounds and socioeconomic kind of strata, like have access to birth center care or to midwives? It's also important to have a pretty diverse midwifery workforce and and just more broadly like perinatal workforce overall. And so I think things like some sort of like structural support for midwives to go through their training and their education, which can be a long process, is really important because then if you have more midwives from more communities and they can serve those communities and, you know, that, that that's just if you want midwifery to be more accessible because you think that midwifery will help improve outcomes overall, which is one of the arguments in the book, then it's really important to ensure that you have a pretty, you know, robust and diverse midwifery workforce, you know, and then because most people give birth in hospitals, I think you also have to sort of think of like, what are some things that could help hospitals to have better outcomes? And so 
There are these safety bundles that are have been developed for like different kind of complications that are trying to kind of standardize and streamline the best practices. And so that's something that is starting to be um, adopted more widely. Um, even like data collection, I mean, that might, might sound a little bit kind of wonky or removed, but the way that we count maternal mortality and morbidity and outcomes is really fragmented and it varies from state to state and the kind of criteria are different. And so that can sometimes make it difficult to have real insight into where the real problems are. And so, you know, also maternal mortality review committees where every maternal death, you're looking into why it happened and trying to prevent it. So, I mean, I could really continue to go on and on, which I won't, but I mean, yeah, there's just like sort of so many things. And I think that even in a state like Oregon that is pretty friendly to midwives, there are still, you know, definitely kind of improvements. And I should also say like doulas too. I mean, doulas are, have been shown to have pretty like positive impact on outcomes and experiences. And Oregon is one of the few states where we have like sort of a, an early program to provide Medicaid coverage of doulas, which is great. But then you also have to sort of look at the reimbursements and like how much those doulas are getting paid. So I think, you know, that's also another component as well. So I'm going to cut myself off there because there's a lot, but you know, there are certainly people both on many levels paying attention to this. And there are a number of representatives in the house who have proposed kind of like a momnibus act Mm -hmm. with a lot of these types of recommendations. So hopefully we'll see some, some forward momentum on, on some of these kind of policy ideas. Real quickly, before we close, if folks are not familiar with the role of a doula, what does a doula do? So a doula provides continuous emotional support during labor and and can also do so during pregnancy and the postpartum period. And so, you know, it's really kind of about having someone there to support you, to help provide um, information and kind of guide you through the process um, to potentially you know, if you're in an environment where you feel like you're being kind of pressured or you need a little bit of time, like doulas can sort of be someone who's just there, like another person in your corner who can say, let's take a minute or like, let's talk mm-hmm. this through. So, you know, it might sound like, I don't know, it might sound like it's not that big of a deal or something, but it really, really is. I mean, doulas have a tremendous impact and a really marked, tangible impact. And so, you know, they're an incredible resource. But again, it sort of gets at that access issue of who's able to afford them and and how much do they cost. But there's some really amazing organizations that are offering like community-based doula groups or sliding scale and that are trying to make doulas more accessible. Awesome. Well, Rebecca, thank you for coming on the podcast. For our listeners, the book is Birth. Go to Powell's, pick it up, support an Oregonian writer. Rebecca, thanks for writing the book. Thanks for coming on the podcast and sharing some insight. If folks want to learn more, what's the best way for them to find out about you and your work? I guess, I mean, I have a website where I post the articles that I do. And then I'm also on Twitter and Instagram and trying to be better about posting more regularly. Awesome. We will throw up some links in the description so folks can find you. Uh, But thanks again for coming on the podcast. It was awesome to talk to you. Yeah, thank you for your good questions.